If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter number 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. We'll look together at verses 13 through 25. We started our look at 1 Peter last Sunday, considering together verses 1 through 12, which largely focus on, outside of an introduction, reminding us of, of who we are. Peter identifies us as strangers and pilgrims, uh, those living in exile. In other words, he reminds us that this world is not our home. But he also reminds us of who, who we are. We have been saved by the gospel. As recipients of God's grace, we are the people of God. Strangers and sojourners, though we may be, we have been possessed by the very God of heaven. That is, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of his death and resurrection, we have become the children of God. We have received adoption into the family of God. And the way Peter describes this great gift of our salvation, it ought to hold us fast and sustain us in joy and gladness and perseverance, even as we live this existence as Temporary residents and exiles in a land that is not our own. This basic theme is continued. In fact, Peter again mentions our position in this world as temporary residents or exiles, strangers, pilgrims, and sojourners in the verses that we're going to read together. And I want you to note here at the beginning of our time of considering these verses together that what Peter says here is really very straightforward. In fact, I'll tell you, there are four commandments in the verses that we're going to read together. They could not be more simplistic. Think about Jesus. Peter says, set your mind on grace, be holy, fear the Lord, and love one another. This is the Christian faith 101. But what's fascinating about the way Peter frames these four commandments is the way we are to be motivated. In other words, he could have just said in, in, a, in a few short breaths, think about Jesus, fear the Lord, love one another. He could have just said, boom, 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 here's what you're supposed to do. But Peter entices us to obedience in each of these areas with brief celebrations of the gospel, reminding us of what God has done in order to deliver us from our former way of life and to make us his own. First Peter chapter one and verse number 13. If you've found your way there, please join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Verse 13 begins, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And if you address his father, the one who judges impartially based on each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your temporary residence. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. 
He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end times for you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. By obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached as the gospel unto you. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be, see be seated. The commandments that we find here, we've mentioned them already, set your mind on grace, be holy, fear the Lord, and love one another can be found all across the scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we are exhorted to mind these very simplistic and straightforward commandments. But again, Peter has mixed and mingled these commandments but with reminders of the power of the gospel that move us to a level of obedience otherwise impossible for us. Sometimes in the mind of those who begin to hear the gospel or begin to take interest in the things of God, the mentality can be, I will come to God, or in the mind of some, as it's often expressed, I will come to church, or I will begin to participate in certain religious or Christian activities once I've sort of gotten myself together. That can often be the frame of mind that people come to Christ or church or the things of God with. That's reflective of misunderstanding, but understandable given its context. What I want you to know and what Peter seems to emphasize again and again and again is that the idea of getting our house in order in order to come to God is nonsensical. In fact, the Bible says it is impossible. It is not that we gather our stuff up, order our house, and then come to God presenting ourselves as though we are acceptable in his sight. It is that we come to God just as we are, acknowledging the mess we are, acknowledging our sinfulness, acknowledging our brokenness. And by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he begins to reorient our lives, to clean up the house, and to sanctify us in the image of his only son. We come to him just as we are. And then he makes us to be as he would have us to be. We come with all of our junk and all of our stuff. If you're waiting for that moment in your life when you have it all arranged nicely and neatly to present to God, you are coming to God with the wrong frame of mind. We come as we are, but in short order, by the power of the gospel, he cleanses and sanctifies by the power of the blood of his only son. Not only is it a futile effort, wrong-headed, to have the idea that we can get ourselves together and come before him in a manner that would be acceptable. Even before we get to that place, the Bible teaches that we have all come short of the glory of God. We are all sinful people. 
apart from the power of God's Spirit at work in us, all of our activities are wrong-headed, evil, wicked, sinful, and bad. The only potential for good in us is the abiding presence of God's Spirit moving, motivating, compelling us to faithful obedience along the way. And even within the church, where there is the acknowledgement that we need a measure of grace, that we would even see the goodness of God for us. We need a measure of grace that we could even know the goodness of God. We need that the scales would fall from our eyes, that God would give us ears to hear and hearts to discern. Even where there is that affirmation, sometimes we can operate under the impression that what we need to do is pull ourselves up by our bootstraps find the inner strength and self-determination to be able to see through certain commands. But what I want you to see in this passage, and I, I think it's powerful, what I want you to see is that the best motivation, the most powerful motivation, the most compelling motivation is the sweetness of knowing what Jesus has done for us. It is the gospel that saves us, yes, but it is also the power of the gospel that sustains and sanctifies and compels us to faithful obedience along the course of this journey of life with Jesus. Look to verse number 13. Peter says here, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Older translations might say something like, gird up the loins of your mind. That's kind of an antiquated way of stating it, but that is a more literal translation of what Peter is describing in the passage. In the context of a time in history when men and women would wear the kind of outer garment that would hang loosely around their legs and feet, when you were prepared to engage in some type of strenuous activity, if you were to run or if you were playing a game or if you were working and there was a moment of, of, of great effort, you would gird up your garment, you would draw it up such that it would not encumber you in exerting this effort or running in this moment or straining at the completion of the task. That's what Peter's describing in this moment. Gather all your stuff up so that there's nothing there to entangle you as you strive toward this goal. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. I any tangential thought, anything that might be a distraction, any direction your mind may be inclined to wonder, cut them all off, gather up all the loose ends of your mind, and set your hope firmly, seriously, forever on the grace to be revealed for us through Jesus Christ on the last day. I find that in the last year or so, I'm seeing this principle in every book of the New Testament. We saw this again and again and again in Hebrews where the author of Hebrews would simply say, consider Jesus or set your mind on Christ or fix your gaze on Jesus. Rather than giving us a list of practical bullet points we are to implement in our life, 
he chose rather to go the simpler route of saying, think about Jesus. And in thinking about Jesus and all that he's done for us, find the power for perseverance, even under great strain and difficulty. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, we are to bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ. I am discovering more and more and more with each day that passes in the reading of the Bible how critically important it is that we set our thoughts on the things of Jesus. What is stirring in our hearts and minds is critical to our ability to persevere over the course of time walking faithfully with Jesus. And there seems in our passage a direct connection being established between what is turning in our hearts and minds and the activities we set our hands and feet to do. Set your minds on grace with your loins girded tightly with all of the loose ends bound up neatly. Be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. It's kind of strange the way Peter frames things in the conclusion of verse number 13. He doesn't say here, set your minds completely on the grace that has been brought to you, although that is implied. He doesn't say, set your mind on the grace that is brought to you at the present, although that too seems to be implied. He says here, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. A reminder to us that not only has God done done something profoundly powerful for us in the past, Not only is God doing something powerful in us in the present, but there is a remarkable work of God that is yet to come for us. Not only are we to trust the grace of times past, God's grace in the past is to function as the assurance of God's grace in the future for us. Trust the grace that is to come. The therefore in verse 13, likewise, serves as one of these motivators, one of the ways that we can be moved, one of the ways that we can find power, energy, stamina for fulfilling the word of God, for maintaining faithfulness as strangers and pilgrims and exiles in a land that is not our home is by fixing our gaze on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the therefore, likewise, provides us with some motivation. It is a reference to all that has been described in verses past, which is essentially the message of the gospel. Be moved by, be motivated by the gospel to reach new heights of faithful obedience in your personal life. Verse 14, Paul, or Peter rather, shifts to a second exhortation. He says in verses 14 through 16, be holy. Look at verse 14. As obedient children... Don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now we're mining these verses for motivation and obedience, right? Just the tender terminology that Peter uses to describe his audience is a reminder of one such motivation as obedient children. 
not servants in the house of God, but sons by faith in Jesus. As obedient children, the first of two strong reminders to us here that we have indeed been in, adopted into the family of God. He exhorts us that we not be conformed to the desires of our former ignorance, a reminder of our past life and the grace that has been bestowed on those of us who have come under the power of the gospel. The primary motivations come for us in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 reads, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. It is that we ought be moved by the holy character of God that we would seek to emulate that in our personal lives. God's standard becomes the point of reference, the measure by which we evaluate ourselves. As the one who has called you is holy, you also be holy. We live in a strange day when what is good or what is evil is almost constantly in flux. What is assigned goodness today may well change tomorrow. It seems that what has for thousands of years been evil is changing and being reassigned to goodness every single day. But the standard for us, the standard for us it's the holy character of God, the righteous character of God who is in heaven. As the one who called you is holy, so you ought to be holy. We couple this with the idea that Peter has set for us in verse number 13, that we are to set our minds on the grace to be revealed to us. And within the framework of a New Testament teaching, it seems to be reminding us again and again and again that we are to fix our focus on the things of God. I would note that what we might glean from this verse and this little simple exhortation is that fixing our mind on the character of God can have a power, powerful effect in your life, holding you fast, sustaining you, even in difficult seasons. As a matter of fact, it can have a powerful effect on you even in the best of times. One of the ways that you can ensure worship outside of the corporate worship setting is by thinking over the characteristic traits of our God. He is holy. He is unlike any other. He is perfect in his righteousness. He is absolute in his justice. He is liberal in his grace. He is lavish in his mercy. He is characteristically good. And thinking about his character can help the believer, regardless of their setting, to worship him in spirit and in truth. The way Peter casts the command that we are to be holy suggests to us that one of the primary motivations in our efforts at holiness is the goodness of God's character. There's a lot that's been done in the history of the church in the name of holiness, in the name of seeking to do what is right. 
But you must note this morning as we hear the call of God on our life that we would be holy and even in the next passage that we would fear the Lord. That that does not look like some legalistic regimen that we're just sort of bearing with, that we're pressing through with great angst and frustration. This is not some kind of puritanical existence. We've been called upon to live by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been called to walk in joy. And there is a gladness of heart that attends our efforts at being holy before God as we reflect on the holiness of his perfect character. As the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Often when there's a quotation from the Old Testament in your Bible, you're probably noticing that be holy, because I am holy, is a quotation from the Old Testament. There'll be some type of footnote or some indicator in the margin or at the bottom of the page to help you to make the connection with the Old Testament origin of the quote. For whatever reason, the source there will point you in all likelihood to Leviticus chapter 11, probably verse number 44. But that verse comes within the context of a much larger section of the book of Leviticus known in biblical study circles as the Holiness Code. And in fact, the statement that is quoted here in 1 Peter chapter 1, be holy for I am holy, occurs again and again and again in the Holiness Code that is that broader section of the book of Leviticus. There in those many chapters, God makes certain prescriptions for the people of Israel. That on his terms and on his terms alone would they approach him in worship. In other words, God will be worshipped according to his terms and according to his terms alone. There are all kind of details that are addressed within that holiness code. The very minutia of the life of Israel is addressed at great length. And the purpose, the function of those chapters and God's interaction with the nation of Israel is to have them live as a people that have been set apart to himself, separated from the nations around them, a distinct people, a distinct group. If there's anything that helps us to understand what it means to be holy in the present generation, it's the purpose of God in establishing Israel as a separated, distinct nation all his own. We may be strangers and pilgrims and sojourners and exiles in a land that is not our own, but we have an identity as a people, not an ethnic or national identity, but an identity as a body. A body made indeed of people of every tribe and tongue and nation. When God calls for the holiness of his church, his intent is that we would walk as a people who by virtue of our character, our interactions, our dealings with those around us would be regarded as a glad-hearted, joyous people washed in the blood of Jesus who indeed live in a way that marks them off from the world around them. Not because we 
march about in sackcloth and ashes or begrudge our existence here, but because there is joy and gladness in our heart that indeed moves us to faithful obedience to the word of God, but gladly so with joy in our heart, one of the characteristic traits of our existence being gladness of heart. Here, the reference to the book of Leviticus, in fact, the reference to the scripture ought to serve for us as a reminder of the power of God's word to move us to obedience. I have been reading and studying the Bible for all of my Christian life now, 20 years, more than 20 years. And I still don't know that I have firmly understood the power of God's word as it's tucked away in my heart to move and motivate for faithful obedience over the duration of time. I only know that it does. I don't understand how it often operates, but I know that it does. I know that on days when I'm reading the Word of God, when I'm cherishing the Word of God, I know that on days when the Word of God is turning itself over again and again in my heart and mind, I know, I know that obedience comes with gladness and it comes with ease. I know that on days when I have drifted away from the Word of God, when I'm not abiding in the Word and Christ is not richly abiding in me, I know that there may not be lots of joy and there's certainly not likely to be lots of faithful obedience. The word of God is powerful to empower us to obey faithfully the command of God for us. Test the Lord in this. Try him in this. Today, spend time in God's word and see if obedience doesn't come with gladness of heart and greater ease in the hours that follow after. Begin tomorrow morning, a Monday morning, with the reading of God's word and fellowship and prayer and see if obedience doesn't come with ease and gladness of heart, even perhaps in areas you have until now struggled greatly. The word of God is powerful to save. The word of God is powerful to move the people of God to faithful obedience. Peter sets this commandment to be holy within the framework of this quotation from the Old Testament, a reminder to us of the power of God's word to move us mightily toward obedience to Jesus Christ. Look to verses 17 through 21. Again, another straightforward commandment, fear the Lord. He says here, if you address his father, the one who judges impartially based on each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your temporary residence. In fact, I, th I think this verse, verse number 17, helps us to understand Peter's agenda, not just in this week's text, but in last week's as well. Again, if you address his father, the one who judges impartially based on each one's work, you're to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your temporary residence. This is not our home. This land is not our land. But as long as you're living in this existence, addressing as Father, the one who has saved us by the power of the gospel, you ought to walk in a posture of reverence toward the one who has saved you. As strangers and pilgrims and sojourners living in exile here, our perspectives, our posture, our outlook, our life is shaped entirely by our relationship to God who is in heaven. Conduct yourselves in fear. I've always wrestled with this whole concept of fearing the Lord and how it ought to look. 
there's some that would define fearing the Lord in such a way as to remove the element of fear altogether, which I think is a dangerous thing. It is not that we're to to cower and tremble at the nearness of God to us. He is fatherly toward us, as we're reminded even in this passage. But there ought to be a healthy reverence, a dreadful respect for God who has indeed saved us from all of our misdeeds. Sometimes when we're talking about the fear of the Lord or communicating about these issues at home or even in conversation with some of you about the fear of the Lord and the the distinction of fearing the Lord versus fearing other things or other people or other experiences or entities. I'll often use the example of, of my children. If I tell my children to go up and to clean their room or to do anything for that matter, I want them to do that because they love me and they seek to honor me as their father. But I also know that there are times when they go and they clean the room because they know if they do not, it will not end well for them. And frankly, some days that's good enough for me. There are times when we are driven to obedience by an abiding love and gratitude for all that God has done for us. And that's the best case scenario. But there's also the safety net for us of acknowledging that a good and faithful God who is great in his justice and strong in his wrath will call our works before him on the last day for which we will give an account. We are to walk fearfully before the Lord, which is to say with reverence before God, conducting ourselves in fear during the time of our exile. There ought to be a greater fear of the Lord as strangers and pilgrims in exile than we might ever think to have for any man or entity here which can only kill the body here today and gone tomorrow. There ought to be a more healthy fear of the Lord who has power over the very everlasting soul. We are to fear the Lord. Now, in a more positive way, we're reminded here again of the fatherhood of God over our life. If you address as father, the one who judges impartially based on each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear in the time of your exile here. He is indeed our father. So it's not that in the fear of the Lord, when we do something that is wrong, we run away from God. It is that in the fear of the Lord, when we do something that is wrong, we run to God. Some have pointed out in in recent days, that's the nature of the relationship they want with their children. I I want that kind of relationship with my children. And it's it's a real struggle to try to find that balance. You want to instill the kind of respect and understanding of discipline that would create in them dread at any punishment that might come for any misdeed. But at the same time, when it's as bad as it can be, you want them to know that there's a safe place with their father to which they may run and find safety and refuge. If this is a worthy effort, endeavor on the part of an earthly father, how much more glorious and how much more perfectly kept and balanced this kind of posture our God in heaven has taken toward us as his sons and daughters. 
Here we may be motivated by the fatherhood of God over our life, but we're also reminded in verse number 18 of the very manner of life that God has called us away from, the great grace that has been lavished upon us. Verse 18 says, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You know, God has graciously saved us. All over this room, there are testimonies of people who have been saved from backgrounds that were not given to righteousness. In fact, there's a whole lot of not likely to succeeds in this congregation. God has shown us remarkable grace. The gratitude that is born out of that is an incredible force when it comes to being moved to obedience and faithful faithfulness in the future. Aren't you glad for what God has done for you? Peter, Peter uses here the language of redemption, which, which means to be freed by virtue of a paid ransom. Someone came along and paid the price of your redemption. You were in jail, you were in bondage, you were enslaved, and someone came along and paid the debt. Someone came along and paid the ransom. Someone came along and paid the price of your freedom. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but as verse 19 says, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. The price of your pardon was the shed blood of Jesus. I've really struggled this week to, to try to know how to frame what Peter is describing here. Because this is not the old church sign guilt trip. Jesus died for you. You should live for him. Although in principle, there's an element of truth there. But God is really not into guilt trips, right? He's into the conviction of sin, but not guilt trips. And I think there's a far better motivation in simply pointing the people of God to reflect on the great price that has been paid for our redemption, that you would look, that you would fix your attention on the cross of Christ where he bled and died, an empty garden grave where he was raised again and find fuel for faithfulness in the realization that indeed he is good and oh, the great lengths he's gone to show us great mercy and grace. God has redeemed us from our former way of life, the price of our redemption, the shed blood of his only son. There's more said about the preciousness of his son in verses 20 and following. He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but revealed at the end of the times for you, who, th who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. A divine conspiracy hatched before the foundation of the world in which God's own son in the fullness of time would pay the price of your redemption by the shedding of his blood. For all who would believe in him, he raised from the dead, giving all glory to God so that your faith and hope might be in the Father through his Son, 
Jesus Christ. Fear the Lord. and Be moved to do so. Moved to obey this command by the notion of all that God has done for you. The precious blood of his son shed so that you and I, by faith in Jesus, might have everlasting life. Fourth command. Love one another. Couldn't be simpler, couldn't be more straightforward. You'll scarcely find a command mentioned more often than this commandment to love one another. Verse 22, by obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Now let's unpack that. Peter tends, from my perspective, to be a little verbose. Notice what's said in the first phrase, by obedience to the truth. Something has already happened. Something's already taken place that's enabling everything described thereafter. Here is an act of the will, a decision that has been made, a choice of the individual has been made to obey the truth. And if you follow what Peter is describing in the phrases and verses after, it seems that the description here, obedience to the truth, is about deciding to trust, believing in the gospel for the salvation of one's soul. By obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers. The only source of purification for our soul is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in your ascending to the truthfulness of the gospel, your obedience to the gospel, you have purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. If you take and you really begin to dig around in what Peter is describing in our passage, what he's saying is that this command is beyond your natural ability, but that you have been enabled to love even those you might have otherwise hated by the power of the gospel which has taken hold over your heart. In your former way of life, you may have harbored real hostility toward others. There may have been people that you outright hated. But because of the power of the gospel in you, given a new heart by faith in Jesus Christ, unlocked in you is a capacity for loving those you may have otherwise despised. That's precisely what Peter is describing in our passage. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. A pure heart is a heart that loves well. And further reminding us of this capacity we now have by the gospel to love, he revisits again our conversion. Verse 23, you've been born again. That is, you have been saved. You have been sanctified. You have been regenerated. You have been made new. You were dead in sins and trespasses, but you have been made alive in Christ, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And the contrast here is between the human seed, a perishable seed, which is reference to, to birthing children, understand you. Children, though they may be precious, they are likewise frail, and though we may live for many years, we will ultimately fail. We are mortal. 
Even a human seed is insignificant in comparison to the imperishable seed of the word of God. Peter is saying, the power by which you have been saved is eternal. It is imperishable. It's greater than silver or gold or even human flesh. It endures forever. He cites a passage from Isaiah to remind us of the nature of that seed. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pure heart is a heart that loves well. The new birth enables our ability for the love of others. But Peter helps us to note here in the closing words of chapter 1 that the new birth is wrought through the power and the preaching of the word of God. He closes verse 25 this way. This is the word that was preached as the gospel to you. Peter is saying here that the power in preaching is not the style or the eloquence of the preacher. The power in the preaching is the power of the word of God. The imperishable seed, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's the word of God taking root in the hearts of man that produces saving faith. Love one another because God has enabled the love of others in changing your heart through the preaching of the word of God and the power of the gospel. Y'all with me this morning? Sometimes on days like today, when no one really expects much, and, and boy, this shaped up to be one of those days, right? So we got snow, we got a holiday weekend, Worship pastor's out, so next man up's Charles. Charles is out, Ben's up. We got, we got sound man out. We got everything that could possibly go wrong on a Sunday morning has gone wrong for us on this Sunday morning. And my experience has been it's often on days like today when God does his greatest work. And, and I, I want you to know, listen, I want you to know, Sometimes there can be a stillness in the room that suggests that maybe something about the text is not finding its way into the hearts of the people. So hear carefully. I, I want you to know that God has, by his word in the gospel, enabled us to obey faithfully everything he requires of us in the gospel. Y'all tracking with me? So it is that not only has God done for us at the cross what we could not do for ourselves, it is that even in our sanctification, by the power and work of his Holy Spirit, he is doing in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Peter will exhort us later that we don't labor in the strength of our flesh, but in the power of the Spirit that abides within us. It's not by power, not by might, but by his spirit, saith the Lord. And if you would only look to Christ, only look to him and find joy in your soul at all that God has done for you and lean into the power he has enabled in our very members, you might find victory even over those sins that have so 
easily entangled you. Find your heart moved with joy and gladness to worship him in spirit and in truth. Find the capacity to stir holiness within your members, to walk with fear before the Lord in the time of our exile here, and to love even the most unlovable among us. If you, if you look out across your life and, and you don't find that holiness is a characteristic trait. The idea, the notion of fearing the Lord is something you've not given consideration to in some time. Or you find breakdowns in your ability to love others. Even in passing moments, breakdowns in your ability to love others. There ought to be real cause in us to examine ourselves, to see that we're in the faith. And then once finding perhaps affirmation at that point, there ought to be a real effort on our part to draw near to God and to find again, to seek that source again of enabling power that equips us to do all that God has required of us. Labor to be brought near to God and find strength for the day that we might walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called as strangers and sojourners in a land that is not our own, find strength to walk worthy, separate, distinct, altogether different from a crooked and perverse generation, drawing glory and honor and praise to Christ and to Christ alone. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. We, we ask, God, that you would move in a powerful way among us, that on a sleepy, snowy winter day, that you would create in us a fiery passion for your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to reflect on who we once were apart from faith, all that you've done to bring us this far. Help us to note, God, that our current standing, our position before you as followers of Christ is not the work of our hands, but the work of your great grace. Help us to rejoice in that. God, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who may be far off, maybe for one who's examining their heart even now and noting inability to love others as you've called us to you would fuel and empower obedience for a heart that's far away from God, that you would draw them near by the precious blood of Jesus. Save to the uttermost, we pray. Do the work of miracles among us here and, and even among those who are watching at home, online, around a television with their family. God, move among us. Make us your own. Do something great for the glory of Jesus' name within our body. Bring us low at the thought of our sinfulness. We are so broken, and yet you are so gracious. Raise us high at the thought of our redemption. Forgive us where we come short. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.